Y'all, before we get to the show, I am so excited to tell you about the website Uncovered. Uncovered is building a digital cold case platform to combine data, technology, and the wisdom of the crowd. Consider this, more than 200,000 unsolved cases have gone cold since 1980, and murder clearance rates continue to drop. With equity for BIPOC, POC, LGBTQ+, and other underserved victims not prioritizing the media or the justice system, together we can do better. Go to Uncovered.com to access resources like their Citizen Detective Guide and interact with cases they're currently visualizing. They're bringing case details together in a way that's never been done before. I've been on the website. I use it. I love it. If you believe families deserve answers, victims deserve a voice, and no one should be a statistic, Uncovered is looking for people like you to head to Uncovered.com to help out in victims advocacy. Previously on Murder in Alliance. I'm curious. Why is she know so many cops? You never asked about that or wondered about it? She was possibly seeing a police officer who lives in Sebring. He was a hot mess. Um, anger and rage. Very few people scare me. He scared me. And supposedly, she told Linda McLaughlin's mother that the youngest child may be this policeman's son. You know, in terms of the police force, my God, I had eight or nine names of officers who were potential sexual partners. This drug guy was putting her up to it, so if he gets caught, he can blackmail the cops. Given what we know about Yvonne is, I'm pretty sure people didn't want a lot of that stuff flying out. This is Murder and Alliance, an active investigation into who killed Yvonne Lane. I'm Maggie Freeling. In October, after the short episode I did on David came out, a woman reached out via the email on David's website. Quote, I'm very interested in helping David, and I'd like to donate. I think what happened here is a travesty. If someone would like to contact me and talk a bit about what needs to be done going forward, that would be great. End quote. The woman said she didn't want to offer a small amount that, quote, got David nowhere. Instead, she offered $25,000 to help David whenever a team was assembled. Money that would cover the investigative expenses like travel, time, and testing if it came to that. This was at the point in my reporting that I knew there was so much that could be uncovered. There were so many leads to follow, an ungodly amount. So when the money was offered, I knew what had to happen and who to go to. What do you do for fun, Jason? Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> our, our board member, Jean, just told me this the other day. I was uh, at the offices and uh, she goes, she goes, you need a hobby, Jason, because um, all I do is work. This is Charles Jason Baldwin. A lot of people know me through the West Memphis 3 case. Uh, and I know this isn't work, but it's kind of work. I'd love to. Uh, I, I teamed up with Anna Vasquez of, of uh, the San Antonio 4. And she has a ranch down in San Antonio. And she's got a great group of friends. And uh, she, her wife, uh, uh, Denise, and a friend of hers, wife, 
uh, uh, coupon, right? So they had these trapper keepers of coupons. And so they get all these great deals on things like toilet paper and floss. I mean, just, I mean, just normal stuff, but they gather it all up, put it in their garage and put it in packages. And so me and another one of their crew, one of their friends would drive out to Austin and have it loaded up in her SUV and, and pass it out to the homeless. I thought you were going to tell me you wanted to get into couponing. <laughs> I was like, that's an interesting hobby. <laughs> oh, yes. In 1994, Jason, along with two friends, Damian Eccles and Jesse Miss Kelly, were convicted of murdering three little boys in West Memphis, Arkansas. They were convicted of murdering three Boy Scouts, hogtied and left in a ditch. But Jesse, Jason and Damian all proclaimed their innocence. Uh, I got kidnapped at the age of 16 by the state of Arkansas and, you know, spent 18 years in prison for something I didn't do. And, uh, and th- which this leads directly to how Proclaim Justice was formed by my co-founder, John Wesley Harden. Proclaim Justice is a nonprofit organization helping to free the wrongfully convicted, formed by Jason and John. As you heard me mention in episode one, in October, I flew down to Austin to meet with them, look at a few cases they were working on, and ask them to take David's case. I knew they were the right people for it. You know, to start, I wanted to know how you founded Proclaim Justice, what it is, how you both met, give me the origin story. Want me to take it or you? Uh, <laughs> we can tag team this, yeah. not like real life. Um, <laughs> yeah. John first heard about Jason, Damien, and Jesse back when the crime happened. So when you're from Arkansas, which I am, um, and I'm about their age, I'm a little bit older than Jason, a couple years older, and, and um, of course you hear about this case, and it's all over the state. Jason was a kid then, doing life for three murders he did not commit. Uh, but like most people uh, our age, I just kind of took off and lived my life for uh, throughout the 90s. And something brought it back to my attention. I think it was an article in the state newspaper there in Arkansas. And uh, I kind of started w- wondering about it. And by that time, the documentary, the first documentary had been made. and. Uh, uh, the WM3.org website had started and that just kind of took me down this rabbit hole of um, these guys are, are innocent and, and uh, so I advocated for them from afar. When when the state was working so hard to keep Damien and Jesse and I in prison and, and trying to murder Damien, everybody who had seen the documentaries and who were saying, hey, there's something wrong with the case, you know, the state should look at the case and open the case back up. Arkansas officials would would just say, you know, hey, those people who are saying that about the case are from New York, are from California, are from New Zealand, you know, foreigners, they're outsiders. They don't know this case like we do. And so they kept putting that lie out there to the Arkansans. And so John Hardin, who was an Arkansan, he was like, no, I've looked at this case. I believe that these kids are innocent and got railroaded. At the time, John was a political and public affairs consultant in Arkansas. But through his West Memphis Three advocacy, he and Jason formed a solid friendship. John was one of Jason's biggest advocates, and he found other Arkansans to help him. They started this uh, organization in Arkansas called Arkansas Take Action to combat that lie that the state was proffering. And so, and that enabled them to do a lot of uh, work on uh, on behalf of our case, you know, on the ground there in Arkansas and to open people in Arkansas's eyes to what was happening. In 2011, after 18 years in prison, Jesse, Jason, and Damien 
were released on an Alford plea. Today, the West Memphis Three walked free. The plea allowed them to profess their innocence, but the state can still keep their conviction. Despite being free, Damien, Jesse, and Jason are still convicted murderers. When Jason, Jesse, and Damien got out of prison, even though they were still convicted murderers, they had a ton of support, not only from John and Arkansans and other people around the country, but from famous musicians like Metallica, whose music was featured in the HBO documentary about the case Paradise Lost. And other famous musicians like Natalie Maines from the Dixie Chicks, Henry Rollins from Black Flag, and Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam. And when Jason got out... Uh, Eddie Vedder had whisked me away to live up in in his castle in, in Seattle. Jason was now far from West Memphis, Arkansas, the town and state that wrongly convicted him, Jesse, and Damien of being satanic child murderers. Shortly after arriving in Seattle, John went up to visit. John, he was like, hey, uh, the best things I've experienced in my life was, you know, marrying my wife, seeing my son born, and, and seeing you guys walk free, go home. You know, and I want to continue doing that for other innocent people in prison, you know, and, and I would like to take that journey with you. And I was like, hey, you know, I promised the guys I left behind, I wouldn't forget them. And this is a way for me to keep that promise. So they started Proclaim Justice. And after getting everything squared away to be a nonprofit, they got right to work in 2013. First, they started with the people they knew in prison who were innocent and immediately looked at death row. They said, Damien, you were on death row in Arkansas for a crime you didn't commit. Were, were you the only innocent person on death row? And he said, no, Tim was innocent, Tim Howard. And so John was like, we need a free Tim. And I'm like, yes, we need a free Tim. And they did. On December 14th, 2017, after 20 years in prison and 15 on death row, Proclaim Justice helped free Tim Howard. Released last Wednesday after 20 years behind bars, most of that time on death row. And short of a year later, they also secured the freedom of Daniel Viegas from El Paso, Texas. The jury find the defendant Daniel Viegas not guilty of... So I wanted to know what it takes for them to take a case. You know, we're, we're very uh, selective in our cases. We want to take everybody's case. It's not humanly possible. And so we have to, you know, we, we have a very limited resources and we have to make sure those resources are successful, you know, and, and, and do the most we can with them. If we can spend one dollar 20 times, we will, you know, <laughs> so make it count, you know. The team itself is pretty small in terms of investigators. It's John, who, along with being a co-founder, is also a private investigator, and Danny Waxler, a lifelong private investigator. They are incredibly thorough. John told me that they have to be beyond certain that the person they are working for is innocent before they officially take a case. In fact, there had been a few cases they told me about that they started working on, feeling good, And then, during their investigation, they discovered the person's guilt. So they take their time to make sure they have it right. 
we're we're working on several cases all the time and and the way our our case work is we may work on a case for a few years before we even officially take a case and a case like david's could take years to properly investigate but i thought it was worth it to ask them to take it and they agreed to look at the files preliminarily so i started like i usually do just you know, started really with the trial transcripts after n- knowing the whole story, and I'm not too far along in those, but already a bunch of questions. If you remember from episode one, John sent me a recording of him and Danny looking at the files and talking about their gut reactions, just based on initial readings of the transcripts. Spent a lot of time on that, and I guess one question is, how the fuck do you pronounce the one prosecutor's name? Bomoel or... Bomble or I don't know. <laughs> we don't have audio, so we don't know how they're referred to. Right? Yeah. We're just, we're... Hmm. Uh, Bama What's his first name? We'll just call him that. Not gonna work here anymore. Not gonna work here anymore. Anyway, they started with the key evidence. You know, right off the bat, a couple of things that raise my eyebrows are the knife in the pants. How did Joe lead them to the? What were the circumstances? and Joe did lead them there, then that's a big fucking deal. But we don't know the circumstances. So just kind of on its face, you're sitting there thinking, okay, plausible, but fucking $300 to murder a woman in cold blood? They question how much sense this makes. I'm under the strong impression that Joseph was the fourth friend of David Thorne that the cops had gone to. If you remember, I spoke with one of those friends, Josh McComb, who said the police tried to get him and a few of David's other friends to confess before they found Joe. There's a full-blown declaration that they went after three friends. I mean, it's, it's, it's in record that there were three other associates or friends of David's that they approached first yeah, and tried to coerce or push them into testifying against David. So do you think that that they like very quickly zeroed in on David and then started, okay. The other thing off the bat was, and I'll look forward to this Rose Moore girl. It sounds like that's how they broke the case, according to them, with even knowing Joe was involved. Remember, Rose and her boyfriend, Chris, were the first people to bring the cops' attention to Joe. Rose told the police that they were at the mall and they bumped into Joe and he showed them the knife. He says that he was over an alliance to kill a woman. And so that's what led them to Joe, according to the state. So she's kind of a big deal. How how did... I thought about that. You know, what if... Let's just say Joe did this. Yeah. Because there are things that make you say, well, the pants, the knife, he had familiarity. Why is he staying at a freaking hotel in town that night? Yeah. Why is there documented a a receipt to confirm that? Yeah. And was Joe in the hotel just going to a party like he later said after he recanted? Or was he actually there to kill Yvonne like the state claims? The guys waffled on his statements numerous times. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So if you if, if we acknowledge that he's been dishonest, 
And he is the entire reason that David Thorne is sitting in jail right now. Well, the reason David Thorne is sitting in jail right now is someone that you acknowledge is a fucking liar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's nothing else. I forgot we were recording. Excuse my language. Oh, fine. <laughs> no, it doesn't matter, man. This is just us talking how we talk. And what about the other suspects? You know, there was, I know that the allegations are out there that even some in the police force were taking advantage of Yvonne's services, if that's in fact what was happening, you know. Um, so I'm kind of eager to see if there's any evidence, like real evidence, to show that, or at least strong enough allegations that can be investigated. After looking at the files, they decided there was enough for them to want to do boots on the groundwork in Ohio. And two weeks later, we left to figure out, is David innocent? And if so, who did kill Avon Lane? In late January, we met up in snowy Ohio and wasted no time. The snow's pretty on the ground up here. We got right to it and set out to find Rose and Chris. <laughs> yeah, you can. Miles. I hope it's the way of Starbucks. Yeah. John starts every morning with Cher. Anyway, at trial, Joe's testimony was the main and only evidence against David. It was his statement that David hired him to kill Yvonne that convicted David and the best evidence against Joe were Rose Moore and Chris Campbell. Just as a reminder, a week before Joe's arrest, a tip from a woman who worked in an apartment complex in Alliance stated that one of her tenants had information in the Avon Lane murder. Helen Walter, a resident at the apartment, had said that her daughter had the information, Rose Moore. The police spoke with Rose on July 12th two days before Joe was picked up. Over three months after the murder, 23-year-old Rose told officers that she and her boyfriend Chris Campbell were in the food court at the Carnation Mall when they bumped into Joe Wilkes. That's where he allegedly told them he was in alliance to do a job. He was hired to kill a woman. For me, she's the, she's the first person on record that mentions Joe. That's the significance of her to me. She's not. But isn't she the one that said he was going to commit a murder? She testified that he said to them that he was there to commit a murder and that somebody was paying him to do it. Rose initially told police Joe was in a white outfit, white pants with some dark. But by trial, she put him in the black pants that were found in the woods. She also initially told police that Joe's knife was an eight-inch knife in a sheath. By trial, she changed her story to the folding knife Joe allegedly bought and was found in the sewer drain near Avon's house, the 3.1-inch blade. And Rose also said that Joe allegedly wrote his phone number on a business card for Chris to contact him in the future. Now, remember, this was also presented at trial, to prove that Joe was there with Rose and Chris. But Sue actually met with Rose and confronted her about the encounter. And 
this card. But if Sue is credible, and I have no reason to doubt that, the whole, I wrote his name and number down, or he wrote it down, and I took that going right or left. left. I'm sorry. And according to Sue, when Sue confronted her with a copy of that business card and phone number, it was pager number, she said, he didn't write this. Joe didn't write this. You did. And, and in Sue's mind, at least, Rose acknowledged that she did write that. So did Sue misunderstand, or did Rose make up that Joe wrote this card? Was she lying for the prosecution about the encounter with Joe? If her story changed, why? And I'll be honest, the handwriting does not look like Joe's, a shaky, twitchy, semi-illiterate kid. And so we wanted to get to the bottom of it. Morning, how are you? It's early. We were looking for Rose uh, Moore. Does she live here? Okay, we are, uh, we're investigators. We work for an innocence project and we're... She was involved in a case 20 years ago right. as a witness. Right, I heard and, something about it, but yeah, she yeah. with uh, my two boys and they're at the dentist. They're at the dentist? Yeah. Will she be back this yep. morning? Okay. Um, I can text her, let you know what time. Yeah, would you mind? I can give you her phone number if you want to talk to her. Yeah, let's do that. Do you think she'd mind talking to us? Uh, I don't, she'll probably, she might have a phone off if she's in the dentist's office. Are you her husband? Yeah. Yeah, we just, uh, I mean, we know that she was sort of uh, just pushed into the case, you know, through no fault of her own, but we're, we're just trying to piece it all together. And, yeah, I don't know what's going on here. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. It's cold here. We're from Austin, Texas. We're not used oh, to this. No, this, is cold. <laughs> this is cold for me. I should grab my coat. All right, well, we'll text her and then see when she's available today and, and visit yeah. with her for a little yeah, bit. There's, there's no school today, so we're here. She works at the school, too. Okay, okay, very good. After John texted the number her husband gave us, we waited. We'll stick around Alliance for a little bit longer to see if Rose texts back. So I don't want to, once we head out of Alliance, we may be gone the rest of the day. Right. We had a ton of other people to track down, but we didn't want to miss Rose. We're just going to kill a little bit of time to give Rose some time to reply. I feel like we should maybe wait outside. Her house? Yeah, just to see what she calls in. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've got to wait somewhere, so. I was just thinking that it's 8.30. Most dentist offices don't open till 8. If she had two kids there. Yeah, I figure she'll be there a little bit. It may be at least an hour before she's available. Could take a run at Chris Campbell and come back over here. He's in Canton. Yeah. So we drove to Canton about a half hour away. Now, again, Chris was Rose's boyfriend at the time. And Chris's testimony was relatively consistent with his statement to the police, particularly that it took him a minute to recognize Joe because he was in all new clothes, which for Joe, a kid who was usually houseless, was unusual. But his statement contradicted Rose. Chris also said that Joe told them he was in town to do a job to kill a girl. Remember, Rose said that Joe said some guy paid him to do it. But Chris said Joe told them that he was killing her for his, as in Joe's, girlfriend. Because Joe's girlfriend didn't like the girl. It's unclear who his girlfriend was at the time. So this is different from Rose's statement, 
and we knocked on a few doors looking for Chris. No luck. Seems like he moves around a lot. As it is with many people, we have tried to track down. And then we finally found someone. Hello. Hi. Good morning. morning. We're looking for Chris Campbell. Does he live here? No, he don't live here anymore. Okay, you don't have any... Okay, you don't... Do you know him? Like, know where he would live currently? Uh, no, he, uh, left me and, uh, went with some other girl and... Oh, so you dated him. Okay. Yeah, he did live here, but he don't stay anymore. Okay. Now, I want to explain something before we go any further. You'll notice in all of the interviews that we do in Ohio, it's not me conducting them as I normally would. It's Danny and John. And there's a good reason for this. Because the sole purpose of this investigation and this podcast is to find the truth, which could hopefully lead back to court, we have to take precautions. If I'm part of the interviews that could be seen as witness tampering, because I'm not a licensed investigator like John and Danny, I'm just a journalist. So although it's incredibly unusual and uncomfortable for me to not do the interviews, I don't want to mess anything up. So I stay back and let John and Danny handle it. How, how long? How long has he been gone? Uh, it's been about a about a month, or two weeks or so. Okay. I'm sorry to hear I mean, that. He's, well, he's been. I've been broke up with him, but I was still letting him stay here. Around. Yeah, yeah. And not stay. I mean, we was just still fucking around. And yeah. Then, and then he just up and got a girlfriend out of nowhere. So now he's with her. Yeah, he's with her. You now. doing all right with that? Oh yeah, it's cool. Yeah. Better, I was better off. You know, I mean, I, like I said, I broke up with him anyways because he was. Oh. Yeah? Yeah, he likes to get around. Chris's ex tells John and Danny that he's with a new girl now. Do you know who she is or where we might could find him? Uh-uh. I know uh, her name's Melissa, and that's about it. And I don't you don't know, know a last name? No. Nope. Would be here in Canton? Uh, no telling. Uh, What's he driving these days? Uh, he don't drive. He doesn't and have a car? And if he is driving, he's driving something the girls are... Whatever, whatever Melissa has or whatever, whoever. Chris would be harder to find than we thought. He's transient, hopping from girlfriend to girlfriend, and we missed him at this house by two weeks. And Chris, like Rose, is important because, again, Chris put Joe at the mall saying he was about to kill a woman on the very night a woman was killed. This corroborating testimony was key to the conviction. It's of course possible Chris was telling the truth, though that still wouldn't implicate David Thorne. But it's also possible Chris wasn't hey, telling I, the truth. Me and Chris ain't been cool I, because of a few reasons. Mm-hmm. I, me and Thorne almost got into a fight when I was in Maplewood JGF. And on top of that, I, he knew that I was pretty much racist. And he hated me very big for that. That's Joe Wilkes talking to Sue in their first phone call. Remember, Sue called Joe in prison, and this was the call where he recanted. Chris is black, and Joe was, by his own account, racist. So the two didn't get along. Joe was also expelled because of that fight I mentioned with Chris. So maybe that meant there was potential motivation for Chris to lie. And if there was motive for Chris, there could be motive for Rose who was his girlfriend at the time. Remember, Rose told police, Chris told her not to say anything. Maybe that's true, but it's the kind of thing we'd like to ask ourselves, especially because police records say the couple ultimately broke up because of, quote, domestic violence problems. Maybe Rose was scared of him. 
maybe scared enough to say whatever he wanted her to. Regardless, Sue is convinced Chris would tell us the truth 22 years later. She said he told her he made it all up, although he wouldn't sign an affidavit. So as we set out to find another address for Chris, John got a text back from Rose. John, again, asked if we could come by after the dentist, and she responded, quote, No, I'm not interested in talking. I gave my testimony in court many years ago. Nothing has changed. How can we take another? I, to- I mean, I'll tell her that I completely understand. Um, we just, you know, let's just play it off, maybe play it off that there's some new, some new information came up pertaining Joe's stay at the hotel in that we haven't even been able to validate or confirm that he truly did even stay in that hotel that night. I'm just going to say we're here from Texas. Um, Totally understand your point of view and just help us get this cleared up one way or the other. John texted back and to this date has not gotten a reply. So for now, Rose and Chris were a bust, but we were just getting started. There were plenty of people we needed to investigate, including many of the people detectives Samson and Mucklow mentioned to the psychic that they never talked to. Next time on Murder in Alliance, we are hosting a live Q&A Monday, June 28th at 9 p.m. Eastern. Everyone is welcome. And if you can't join, mail your questions to unjustandunsolved at gmail.com. And we will be playing the live audio for our episode that week. Details and link to the event will all be on our social media pages and website. We will be back with our investigation July 8th. Y'all, if you like this show, please consider joining the Unjust and Unsolved Patreon. It shows how much you care and helps us continue to tell these stories. Plus, you get some awesome bonus episodes, Q&As, and events as a thank you. And please, please rate and review. The more reviews, the more attention, and the more likely we're going to get tips and leads and the right ears will be reached. Murder in Alliance is produced and reported by me, Maggie Freeling, with editorial consulting from Amber Hunt. Aaron Case is our legal intern, and Bob Mallory is our engineering assistant. For more information and resources, go to murderinalliance.com. You can find Murder in Alliance on Twitter and Instagram at murder underscore alliance and join the discussion on Facebook at Unjust and Unsolved Podcast Discussion Group. Murder in Alliance is a production of the Obsessed Network. You can find all their shows at obsessednetwork.com. 